What a wonderful truth that our names are written in his wounds and through his suffering we're free. That's a great truth to begin this new year, isn't it? Uh, Let me invite you uh, to turn with me to Psalm 131. That's our our text for today. And uh, before we read this, will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the gospel of truth, for the story of the cross, for the pain that you suffered, that you bore the awesome weight of sin, that every bitter thought and every evil deed of your people was crowned upon your blood-stained brow. Father, we do thank you for this gospel that's breathed out by you, that is perfect and revives our souls, that is sure, that makes wise the simple, that is right and rejoices our hearts, that's pure and enlightens our eyes. Help us, Lord, to overcome our fears this day and this year, particularly the fears of death, as we look into your word, which is pure gold and sweet honey. And by it, may your servants be warned, Lord, may they be encouraged. And in keeping your word, Lord, may there be great reward. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm uh, 131. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We thank God for his word. So I wonder how your neighbor would describe you. What I mean by your neighbor, I mean uh, your roommate, uh, your friend, your brother or your sister. How would your brother or your sister uh, describe you, particularly after spending lots of time with them this holiday? How would your mother and father describe you? How would your son and daughter describe you? What qualities do they see within you? What are the attributes that they see? What do they describe about your character? What do your classmates or your teammates, your work colleagues, how would they describe you as a person? What about the person sitting next to you, the person who's just down the pew from you? If you allowed them one or two words to describe your your attitude or your personality, your persona, your temperament, I wonder what they would say. Maybe they'd say that you're fun. Maybe they'd say that you are um, kind, that you're generous. There are some qualities described in Scripture and that come out in this psalm that describe what God's people are like. Let me see if you can sort of think about the words that are in that psalm, and I'm going to read some other passages for you. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 3. And this is Paul describing uh, his observations of the church at Thessalonica. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. About Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, that endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. In Colossians 1, 3 to 8. We always thank God the Father for our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So faith, hope, and love. We're used to that when we think about Corinthians, don't we? That passage, that great passage in love. And we think about the Christian life being a life of love, and it is. Love is the characteristic, the attribute which marks Christians. But what about hope? Would somebody say, I know Bill, Fred, Mary, Jean as a person of hope? Because that's what Psalm 131 is speaking about. It's talking about hope. I want, to think, I want to think about the hope that's described in this particular psalm. And I want to talk about three particular things. One is that sin, particularly self-dependence, destroys hope. Sin, particularly self-dependence, pride, the root of all other sins, we say, destroys hope. Secondly, I want to show you that hope spawns or fosters contentment. And isn't that something that's missing in the world today? With COVID and people leaving jobs and people looking around and saying, where is my contentment? Where does it come from? None of these things that I thought were going to bring contentment have actually brought contentment. My job didn't. My degree didn't. My money didn't. The system didn't, the government didn't, my health didn't, the church didn't. So hope spawns contentment. Our contentment comes from hope. And without hope, there's no contentment. And lastly, I want to show you that the Lord Jesus is the foundation and fountainhead of our hope. Without him, there is no hope. He is our hope. So we're in the book of Psalms. Why would we go to the book of Psalms when we're thinking about character qualities or, or attributes? This is our songbook, right? The book of Psalms, we think of the songbook of God's people. Because we love to sing. Don't people love to sing? Believers and non-believers love to sing. My boys, they love to sing. Uh, both of them, they, they walk around the house morning and evening singing. Uh, in the showers, uh, in the car, they want the music on. They want to hear, uh, they want to sing. Sometimes we video call Caleb at college, and as he's talking to us, he's singing, he's humming a song. 
We love that our boys love to sing. The Lord has written, hasn't he? He's written a song on our hearts. Music resonates with all people. So in the book of Psalms, God's given us a songbook. In many ways, Psalms gives a, a voice to our soul. That he's written a song within us, and he's given us an expression of that song in the book of Psalms. He's helped us orient our songs towards worship. And very often our songs don't reflect worship. But in the book of Psalms, it says, whatever your circumstance, you can worship God. 150 different poetic compilations, 150 different hymns, hymns of joy, hymns of lament, hymns of thank, thanksgiving. In the book of Psalms, we see invocation. We see pleas to God for help. We see complaints. We see confession of sin. We see assertions of innocence. We see curses upon enemies. Confidence in God's response. We see blessings and we see praise. There are psalms of confidence, psalms of remembrance. There's wisdom within the psalms. There's God's kingdom, a recognition of God's kingdom and the coming of God's kingdom and the reality and the presence of God's kingdom. We see the benefits of righteous living, the benefits of obedience. We see majesty in the Psalms. It's a song book, but it's also a prayer book. And in New Testament, it's one of the most quoted, if not the most quoted, Old Testament book, maybe second to Isaiah. The Lord Jesus himself speaks of the Psalms and recites the Psalms. In fact, many people have said this is Christ's songbook. The Psalms fill our hearts with truths about who Christ is, about what he has done and what he will do. Remember in Luke 24, when he's walking on the road to Emmaus and he says, he reminds them that everything that's spoken of in the prophets and the Psalms and the law will point towards who he is. And we think about the key figure in the Psalms and maybe the key author, which is David. Um, and so we think of Jesus as the Davidic king. So Psalms reflects Christ as well. Not just by extension of who David is, but actually he is the central character of the Psalms as well. So the authorship of the Psalms, as we look at this, we, each, each Psalm has got a little heading, hasn't it? It sort of says this is written by, or this is of, or this is from uh, somebody. I think people... Of all these 150, people think of Asaph as having written about 12 of them and Korah about 11 and Solomon and some of the others writing one or two. But 73 times, the little heading on top of the Psalms, as with this one, speaks about uh, David, a song of ascents of David. And actually, when you look into those little titles, it'd be good to talk to Ethan and Luke about this, whether these are inspired. I think most people say these aren't inspired titles. And when were they added? Probably afterwards, maybe by David, maybe by the writers. But, but if you see, they're often written in the third person, not the first person. So if, if David wrote this, then the title says of David, so he wrote it afterwards. But actually, the prepositions that are used are actually a bit vague. They don't always mean that they're written by that person. It might mean that they're about them 
or it's for them. So the prepositions that are added are actually about vague, but reminds us again that they're all, this psalm is about David. And ultimately we'll see it's about Christ. So the psalms are the Old Testament songbook singing about Yahweh. But in the New Testament, we realize they're really singing about Christ. It's Christ's songbook. And this is a song of ascent. If you see, this is called a song of ascent. And there's a, there are a few of these songs of ascent, as it's described here, talking about this journey to Jerusalem, journey to worship. So this might be, you could say, if this is for you, which wonderfully all of the Psalms only have a vague historical context. When we look in other passages of the Old Testament, we say, oh, this is clearly about this period of time, or here are these historical figures. Actually, the Psalms uh, sit vaguely within history. Some people take the Psalm and say, oh, I'm going to speak about this historical event because this Psalm refers to this historical event, and it might do, but the author, the Holy Spirit, hasn't given us a precise historical co uh, context for most of these psalms, which means, wonderfully, that they're for all times for God's people. And haven't you found your own laments and your own praises within the psalms themselves? But you can think of this one, it's a song of ascent, along with Psalm 122 and 124 and 133. We can think about this as song as we head towards worship. And what does he say? The psalmist, David, or is this about David, says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? As I go towards the temple or as I come to church, I don't think of things. My heart is not oriented towards things that are too high for me. He's actually, as we look at this psalm, you're going to see these contrasts. He's saying, I am not prideful. I am humble. And you're going to see these contrasts all the way throughout this psalm. You're going to see, he's going to say something, and you can look at the opposite and say, well, if that's true then if this humility in the second part brings contentment, then pride brings discontentment. So we see these hidden contrasts and these links as well. The first part is linked to the second part. It's saying that because I'm humble, I'm content. So we'll see that as well. It's got, it contrasts pride and humility, anxiety and contentment being earthly-minded to being heavenly-minded, to being self-reliant on being God-would-reliant. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So here we see this, this psalmist that's speaking about three different elements. He says that my attitude is one of humility not one of pride and self-reliance. And look, he speaks about his heart not being lifted up, his eyes not being raised too high, and his attention not being on things too great 
or too marvelous. There are things that are too great and too marvelous for you and me to be concerned with. That's what humility is all about. We often trouble ourselves with things that we shouldn't trouble our things about. One of those things is tomorrow, isn't it? Our plans are always aimed at tomorrow. Jesus said in Matthew, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough troubles for itself. He says, today is where your life is to be rooted. Now, we spoke earlier, some of the readings spoke about being wise and and being a good steward. But look, he is saying, he's looking at and saying, I do not lift my eyes to things that are too wonderful or too marvelous. And this, this combination of these three things, the heart, the eyes, and the attention, or life, come up in sort of three or four other places in Scripture. I wonder if you can think about any other places. Probably about four places. One of which is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. So let me just read that to you. 1 John 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, are not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here we're talking about the desires of the flesh. The heart is your inner man, your inner woman, your inner person. It's the center of your affections, the center of your beliefs and the center of your choices, your desires. It's the worship center. Here it says, I do not, the the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes and the pride of life are not from the Father, but from the world. He's saying, my heart, my desires are not lifted up. Meaning that they are proportional. Um, I'm, the psalmist is saying, I'm not, I haven't been influenced by anything which is tempting me by ambition or tempting my pride. I've submitted myself to the simple things. The simple things, to the things of today in some way. Now these are... These three things, the heart, the eyes, the pride of life, when you think about it, it's the things that we do, the things that we have, and who we are. It's speaking about actions, it's talking about stewardship, it's talking about identity. The lust of the flesh, what do we do? The lust of our flesh is we're often seeking comfort from Christmas, from the new year. What are our prayers for the new year? I want comfort. I want The absence of suffering, the lust of the eyes, that's covetousness. Todd prayed about the covetousness. We look at things, don't we? Look at all those presents I can get. Look at at what life can offer me this year. And the pride of life, the attention is often about control. Comfort, covetousness, and control. We saw that too in the garden. And these are the things that we worry about, aren't we? 
What he's saying is, and he's going to say this more in the second half, he's saying, I don't concern myself with these things. We often do. And these become the source of our worry and our anxiety and our troubles and our temptations, don't they? When you want something inordinately, when you want them too much, they become troubling to your heart. And he's saying, I am not, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. He's saying that we should not be ruled in life by what we want and what we see and what we desire. To be, we should be contented with what God has marked out for us. To consider what he calls us to. To be thankful for what he gives us. And to not aim at fashioning our own lives. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have goals. I'm not saying that it's not good to have dreams. It's not good to apply for college or to apply for a new job. I'm not saying that. But with what heart are you, are you looking in those places for? How moderate are your desires? Do you moderate them? Or do you, do you rush into sort of rash decisions because you want something so uh, so much within your own heart. He denies that his heart, he's on the way to worship, he's a, it's, it's a psalm of ascent. He's saying, my heart has not been filled up. I'm ready to worship you. I'm ready to come to receive what you have for me. I'm ready to draw close to you. I'm ready to offer my praises because pride does not rule my life. Doesn't pride often lead us don't our passions often draw us, our affections, our inordinate affections instead of our affections for the Lord, onto presumptuous flights to hurry sort of recklessly into areas? And what happens when we do that? Whether that's relationships or, or work or actions, isn't that when we become confused? And where does anxiety and worry come from? When we realize it's up to us to be successful in that area as well. You see, anxiety and worry and lifting our heart up to be self-reliant challenges God's sovereignty and his goodness. Isn't that what Eve did in the garden? The same, the, the pride of life, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life were the same that Satan used in the garden to attract Eve to doubt God's goodness, to want things to be all wise, to want things that were not promised to her, to want things beyond her station. Doesn't it remind you too of, of Job and some of those great phrases uh, that Job uses and when God spoke to Job as well, telling him to, uh, who are you, man, to desire those things? Jesus prayed a prayer of thanks that only certain things had been revealed to people, even to himself. At that time, Jesus declared, this is Matthew 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, if you come to me and receive the things that I've given to you, your worries and your fears are set aside. It's when your desires for things of the world to be self-dependent are driving your life and your choices. Romans 12, 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Psalm 139, O Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hand me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. And then Job, when the Lord confronted Job and all of his questions, he says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I've heard of you by the hearing of your ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So here are these, the riches of God's wisdom, the knowledge of God, his unsearchable judgments. They're too great for us. We're to rest in him, to be, to be trusting of him. To put a restraint on some of our ambitions to know more than we should know. To do more uh, of, of what we shouldn't be doing. To live lives that are peaceable. We could say that's true for COVID, right? COVID's confusing. COVID, who knows what's going to go on? Are we to worry about that? Or are we to rest in his sovereignty? Do we try and search answers where there are not answers to be searched? We're to be content within those things. So here we have the psalmist describes his, his, his attitude of humility with reference to his heart, with reference to his eyes, with reference to his attention. He says, I've not walked in great things that are above me. So think about David. Think about David was a king. So if this is about David, what was he thinking about? He maintained his humility amidst his kingship, didn't he? Submitting to God's will within his life. To, and when he desired things that were not for him, Bathsheba, that's when things went wrong. When he stayed at home, when he should have been being a king. So our anxiety often comes when we turn to trust our own power instead of God's power, to trust our own provision instead of our own provision, to trust the goodness and kindness of others instead of God's goodness and kindness, to trust 
hoping in a false forgiveness and mercy rather than in his forgiveness and mercy. You see, when we sin, when we're guilty, when we're ashamed, our hearts are troubled. The next part speaks about the contentment that comes from this turning to be God-dependent rather than self-dependent. He speaks this wonderful picture. He says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. He speaks about two things here. He speaks about contentment and he speaks about silence. I don't know if you have ever weaned an animal. This is about a weaned child, which is a wonderful picture. I wean animals all the time, so I work as a vet, I work in livestock. And the biggest problems we have are at weaning. When we take an animal from its dependence on its mother, drinking milk, to eating solid food. So what's the difference? An animal or a child that's not weaned? A child that's not weaned, all the time it wakes up, it's hungry. I want, give me, I need more food, now I sleep. I wake up, I want more food, give me more food. Always, never fully satisfied. Even if satisfied for a short period of time, then wanting the next food. Here's this picture of the weaned animal that's no longer dependent on the mother, on the mother's breast. Could still be lying, the contentment is almost of lying on the mother's breast but not wanting anything from the mother, no more milk. Because the provision is elsewhere. So it's this wonderful picture of uh, my soul is calm and quiet. Sin, guilt, and shame troubles our souls, makes our souls noisy and restless. That's why we often look for solace and contentment in other places. Here he says, my soul, my inner person is content and quiet. It's he that makes me lie down between, uh, by quiet waters. It's he that provides nourishment to my soul. It's he that satisfies my, um, my wants. It's also this picture of, within that, it's this picture of fullness. And often we think, when we think of fullness, we think of the wrong things. You can think something's full when it's not really full. We might leave this church today and say, oh, the church is full of pews, but we know it's empty because it's designed for people. You might say a suitcase. A suitcase is full of air, but it doesn't have any luggage in because it's designed for luggage. We wouldn't call that a full suitcase. Here's this content child that's still full of food, and the soul is designed to be satisfied, designed to be full, but the world will not fill it. The world will not bring contentment. The desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life will not fill the soul. The contentment comes from the filling of the thing that was made, that it was made for. The suitcase was made for luggage. The church was made for people. Its fullness comes from being filled with, uh, with satisfaction by the thing that it was meant to be full of. 
So here is this great picture of being, being um, con the contentment of a weaned child. And we see this figure of childhood being used elsewhere by the Lord Jesus. Come to me like little children. It kind of, again, um, reinforces this idea of, of humility that's needed. Thinking about coming with simplicity. Not worrying about things that are too great. But living lives of contentment which are lives of simplicity and of peace and harmony with God, with one another, even with our enemies. The last passage then speaks about the source of all of those things, the source of humility and the source of contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book saying the called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he's one of the Puritans, and the Puritans spoke a lot about contentment. They talk a lot about peace. Even the times, imagine the times they, looked, they lived in, compared to the times that we live in. They had great persecution and great needs and great troubles. But Jeremiah Burroughs says in that book, he says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise, and fatherly disposal in every condition. So here we have the psalmist saying, I'm not self-dependent, because pride and self-dependence, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the heart, uh, the, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, destroy actually hope. Because what does he say at the end? He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's in hope, it's being people of hope that brings contentment. It's, it's being people of hope that brings satisfaction, that brings fullness. And we can only hope when we're not, we can only hope in the Lord when we're not hoping in ourselves. So the psalmist ends up and actually witnesses to Israel and says, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Not just for this moment, but your hope is an eternal hope. Discontentment often comes from pride. It comes from impatience. I want to speed things along. I don't hope in the Lord's provision for a spouse, for a job, for success, for money. I become impatient. Our discontentment often comes from presumption. You owe me this. I deserve this. I should have this. It comes, discontentment comes from greed. I want more. I'm not content with what I have. And it comes from unbelief, not trusting in his power, in his provision, in his providence as well. So here we have this this. The psalmist ending up saying the cornerstone of our contentment, the cornerstone of my satisfaction is actually to hope in the Lord. I have reason to be content because my hope for tomorrow is in the person who has already given me victory over death. I often grumble because I don't have what I want because I'm not hoping in the Lord's provision. This psalm is about the Lord Jesus and the hope that we have in him. If you don't know Christ today, 
you actually have no hope. In uh, um, some of the, the great uh, catechisms, I think it's the Heidelberg, it says, what is my hope in life and death? And the answer to that is, my only hope in life and death is that I belong to him, belong to Christ, body and soul, that I'm his. Because if I reach the day of judgment and I don't belong to Christ, I have no hope. My only hope is of an eternity in hell. And hell isn't a place of contentment. Hell isn't a place of satisfaction. Hell isn't a place of a quiet soul. It says there'll be gnashing of teeth and there'll be tears and there'll be mourning and there'll be groaning and there'll be grumbling. Constant activity where the worm never rests. So as a non-believer, my only hope for salvation, my only hope for forgiveness is in the person of Christ. As a believer, our only hope for contentment is in the person and provision of Christ. He died, but he was raised again to give you a new birth where you can live as ambassadors for peace to other people. If we're not hopeful people, we can't witness effectively to other people. If we're discontent, if we're chasing the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life, are people going to look to us and say, I want to know the God of that person? The psalmist can say these things because of their contentment. They can tell Israel to hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore because they've experienced that. You might be a nice person. You might be a kind person. But do your neighbors, do your friends, do your family see you as a person of hope? Because hope is manifest in contentment. Hope comes through humility. And of course, the greatest example of that is the Lord Jesus, who in the book of Philippians set aside his place in heaven to come and take the place of a servant to live with us, to, father, to follow his father's will, to live as fully man, to die, to take our sins upon him and to be raised in glory. So our only hope is him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this songbook, this book that is a mirror to our hearts, is an anchor to our souls. We thank you for reminding us how easily we fall into pride, how easily we fall into impatience and presumption, into greed and unbelief. So as we look into your word, Lord, I pray that we would not harden our hearts, that you would help us uh, look forward, looking at the promises that you've given us to live a life of expectancy. Help us this time of year to look back on your goodness and your grace and your mercy not only in our salvation, but in your provision for us as a people, as a church, as individuals. Help us also look around, Lord, to those who need to hear uh, the truth of hope in Christ. Help us be faithful witnesses 
Help us look to Christ, Lord, and may you work out uh, his character, his personhood within us. May we reflect his image and that image of hope and humility to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.